are listening to Tech Reads, interviews with emerging technology thought leaders. Our sponsor is SoftTech, the premier technology trade association that has been serving Northern Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County since 1997. Our mission is to create soft tech moments where people connect, explore ideas, and create new business opportunities. Learn more at softec.org. Hello, everyone. This is Brian Schwartz from SoftTech, and I'm very excited for our speakers today. We'll have them introduce themselves, but I'm here in San Luis Obispo. My name is Brian Schwartz. I'm here with Troy and John. We have Bob Dumichal on the phone from Rua Grande and Jeffrey from Santa Cruz and Douglas from the UK. Um, and this will be released as a podcast as they always are. Uh, I often forget to thank our sponsors. So I'm just going to make a quick shout out to some of our sponsors of SoftTech, our Santa Maria um, Valley Chamber of Commerce. Story Labs is where we host these tech reads. Santa Maria Airport, iFixit, Torchlight Marketing, Seslock Federal Credit Union, uh, Astound, uh, which has been rolling out fiber networks all across the Central Coast, and CIO Solutions, as well as others. So I recommend you check out our website. But with that, I'm very excited. The topic today and the authors of Agile Conversations are going to enlighten us to something that we may be familiar with from a software development perspective, but haven't maybe applied it in the real world and in our conversations. And I've, I've written up some questions, but I'll be encouraging our guest to chime in as well. And Bob is about halfway through the book, so he'll probably have a few questions as well. But why don't we start with introductions? Jeffrey, why don't you go first and just tell us who you are and where you're at? Sure. Uh, so Jeffrey Frederick, um, uh, born in Silicon Valley, uh, spent much of my career here, did spend 10 years over in the UK, uh, where I was at a, a fintech company, where uh, along with Scroll for part of that time. Um, kind of through my career, I've gone back and forth between, I'd say, the technology business divide. So been an engineer, QA engineer, documentation, as well as, you know, being in um, product management and marketing and kind of go back and forth between those two different roles. Currently, uh, uh, four days a week, I'm VP of engineering for a fintech company called iAnalytics. And then one day a week, I do coaching for executives and executive teams. Awesome. Thank you. And Douglas? Well, so I'm Douglas Squirrel. Most people call me Squirrel. You're welcome to call me Douglas. I'm happy with either name. They both work. There's just lots of Douglases and not many squirrels. So uh, take your pick. Not and, the speaking uh, kind anyway. <laughs> so I've been I've been coding for about 40 years, and I'm uh, uh, probably 45 now. I haven't done the maths recently. Yeah, 45 years, and uh, I've been some kind of senior technical leader for 25 of those. So um, CTO, uh, head of engineering, um, uh, uh, VP of engineering, all those kinds of titles. And um, I kept getting fired um, from all those roles, including the one where I hired Jeffrey, uh, and he replaced me. And um, uh, every time I got fired... The, the founder, the CEO, would come to me and say, Squirrel, you've built this great team. They're doing a fantastic job. Uh, you've trained someone to lead them. They seem to be so productive. It's just incredible. And, gee, you're kind of uh, expensive, and there's not much for you to do. So would you please go away and be wonderful somewhere else? And this was a very nice way to get fired. But the third or fourth time, I said, hang on, there's a pattern here. I should do something. So I became a consultant. And now I've worked with, uh, I think the latest count is 193 different companies in about eight years. So I move very fast. 
I help them very quickly, uh, and I work with them on exactly the topics we're going to be talking about today, how to make software teams productive by having better conversations. And um, uh, uh, the last thing I'll say is I also run a community of people who are interested in that. I'm sure we'll talk more about how that works, um, but that's uh, uh, a free resource that I have uh, to give back to the community to make sure that lots and lots of people learn about how to make their tech teams much more productive and profitable. I love it. Bob, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself and as president of uh, SoftTech? Sure. I'm the president of, of SoftTech. I have a small business that does uh, T-shirt imprints for military-themed T-shirts, <laughs> as you can tell from my attire. And uh, But I, I've been in the tech field for about 40 years, and uh, this is now my eighth startup. So... Uh, I've been through that that process many, many times. And I've fired myself before, so don't feel bad. <laughs> I don't feel bad at all. The best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, but but uh, that, that's kind of my story. I've been involved with soft tech for about 25 years now. So this is Thank my you, third time as president. Yeah. I just you have can... one thing to check. You might edit this out in the podcast. I'm not sure. But uh, I just realized, can you hear me okay? And do you hear any other sound? This house is 600 years old. It was not designed with Zoom in mind. Do, do I sound okay? <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah. No Good news. Then I'll, we'll keep going. Thanks for checking. So um, before I get into some of the, the content and the specifics I've picked up in the book, again, it's Agile Conversations, Transform Your Conversations, Transform Your Culture. Maybe just set the stage about the different conversations and maybe at a really high level, if it's even possible, you know, a briefer on what Agile is, and I actually wrote down maybe the simplest way and tell me if this is accurate. Agile is having the cap having the capacity to embrace change. Is that yep. an accurate kind of ba most basic foundational explanation? Yep. Yeah, I like it. It's, uh, it also happens to be the subtitle of XP Explained uh, by Kent Beck, the, the white book 1.0 back in 2000 or whatever, uh, shortly before the Agile Manifesto was signed. The 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 uh, the uh, subtitle of that was Embrace Change. Right. So you're 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 getting a classic definition there. And it's equanimity. I like that because I'm a, a mindfulness practitioner and. I think it's having that equanimity in the real world, but of course it stems from software. But um, so you've taken something that uh, has been used for software development and you've evolved it into, again, the working communication of one another. So maybe just preface us a little bit about what the bare bones foundation someone needs to know if they're going to, if they know, if they want to know if this is the right book for them to pick up, maybe start with uh, Doug, uh, Squirrel. You can call me either one. They really both work. Oh, and I should show off. Uh, we just I just got a delivery of this. This is the uh, Chinese version of the book. So if, if anybody uh, wants to read it in Chinese, there you go. I just uh, have five copies. So you have to show that off. But um, here's the main thing is uh, equanimity and um, uh, mindfulness are, are fantastic things. I'm all in favor of them. But uh, we're going to if you read our book, you're, you're going to have more productive conflict. You're going to be uncomfortable. Uh, you're going to feel uh, stupid. Um, so uh, if you're not prepared to do any of those things, if that's going to shake your equanimity, then maybe work on some more mindfulness first. Um, but if you'd like to feel really uncomfortable and that most things that are going wrong in your organization are your fault, uh, then our book would be really good to read. I like <laughs> and And conflict, I have had this conversation on more than one occasion where organizations and successful companies thrive on conflict. In fact, if you go in for an interview with Amazon and you think conflict is something to avoid, 
you will definitely not get the job because they're seeking uh, people who thrive in that world and challenging each other and understanding and sort of twisting, turning the idea that conflict is something we should avoid. I'm curious what your takes take is on that, sort of making that sh- mind shift. Well, the key thing is the word productive. So there's an adjective in front of conflict. So there's the type of conflict, which I think Jeff Bezos is pretty famous for, uh, where you call somebody in and scream at them for a while, and then uh, somehow they become more productive. Um, that works for some people. I'm never going to argue with success. So that's not what our book's about. Our book is about discovering the conflicts that already exist that people cover up and hide from and are uh, skillfully incompetent at dealing with. And they manage to create situations where, for example, their tech team is working on the wrong thing for uh, six months or a year, delivers something, and customers hate it. And mm-hmm. you think, well, how did that happen? Where did that come from? Or the marketing team refuses to do any um, uh, branding tracking because they say, look, customers don't pay attention to surveys. It's all wrong. We won't do it. And then their brand isn't doing well. Wherever they might be working in an ineffective way, almost always at the root of that is some conflict that is occurring that is being handled in an unproductive way. It's either being hidden or there's screaming or there's something else that is um, harmful. So our book is all about how not to do that. Maybe Jeffrey wants to pick up there. No, I think that's great. And I think if because if, if we go back to what you said earlier in the beginning, like the, the ideas and principles of Agile are pretty simple and common sense. And so there's a sort of weird paradox. If they're so simple and straightforward, why aren't people doing them? Like, why aren't they getting better? It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of ability to execute. What prevents the group of people from executing better? And it usually comes as the ability to converse in a way that taps into all the wisdom of everyone and so that they get smarter as a collection, that the diversity of experiences become a strength rather than diversity being a source of unproductive conflict. So that's the fundamental problem we're trying to solve is what makes a group of people essentially stupid or otherwise to be a little bit less negative, what prevents them from being their best collection of selves? And usually it's a lack of skill in conversations. And, and I think that's the other message from our book is productive conversations are a skill, which means they require practice. So it's a little bit like if you're gonna learn how to play piano, Learning piano is also a skill. I can explain to you the theory of a piano. I can explain that the, the strings are different lengths and the different lengths make different sounds. And I can explain how you push a key and a hammer strikes the, the, the string and it makes a sound and vibrates. You can understand a piano completely in you know five or 10 minutes. That doesn't make you able to play piano. To be able to play piano proficiently requires practice over a period of time conversations are the same, but there's a challenge with this, which is people don't, aren't aware of their lack of skill in conversations. If you're, if you're learning most, a lot of things that have skill involved, when you make a mistake, you can see it, right? If I'm playing tennis and I hit the ball in the net, I see it. Oh, that was not good. I hit the ball, you know, out of the court. Oh, that wasn't so good. If I'm learning to ski and I fall down, it's, I'm getting the feedback. Conversations, we get very little feedback because of the way our minds work. We will tend to look at the failures of conversations as someone else's fault rather than our own. And that prevents us from learning. So in a, in a nutshell, the book is about the techniques of how you can learn to develop your own skill. But that to do so goes back to what Squirrel mentioned earlier. That's going to be uncomfortable because now you need to take the mindset of like, what could I be doing differently? Where do I lack skill and how could I improve? 
So that's kind of my uh, summary of the motivation and, and what the book is about. So that might resonate with some people. Uh, I'll say that the uh, final, I say is like final description I'll give is people who've read the book tell us one of two things. Uh, they'll say like, oh, I really enjoyed the book. You know, I really enjoyed reading it. And then the other people say, wow, it took me a lot longer than I expected. You know, I had to do these exercises and it was kind of hard. <laughs> well, the, the second group of people are getting a lot more out of it than the first. We're very happy when people enjoy it. But the people who say like, oh, I had to struggle a bit. Like those are the people who are actually developing the skill. And putting it into practice. And early in the book, you talk about the four R's. Why don't you share a little bit about that, how that's a core part of the strategy of, of practicing, would you say? Yeah. Um, so the, 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 our practice model that we came up with was kind of derived from what we've seen in applying different modes and models of communication. And we said, look, across any of the different models you might be trying to apply, there are four steps that we see as important. And they are uh, to record the conversation, uh, to reflect on the conversation, which is kind of to score it, and then to revise the conversation. And then ideally, you do some role play to practice speaking those things. And then you might repeat that and even do role reversal. So there's the six four R's, but it's, you know, it's not a math book. It's a, it's on conversation. So it, it kind of works. And that recording, it doesn't mean that you necessarily record the conversation like we're doing this, although that does serve some purpose. It's more that you're replaying the conversation at a later date. Yeah, we have a pretty not quite, not quite. Hang on, hang on. So there's a there's a common misunderstanding and people who are listening to the podcast might not have seen that you were pointing to your head. Yeah. That's the danger. Yeah. Okay. So there's a very important thing that comes about when you, and this is what distinguishes the two groups of people Jeffrey talked about. The people who say, oh, it's a nice read, or the people who say, but it was painful. The painful ones are the ones who get a piece of paper, that's the key part, and they write on the piece of paper what happened in the conversation. It doesn't have to be recorded with a tape recorder, a, a phone or anything, or on Zoom, but it does mean that you need to write it down. And the thing that happens is called self-distancing. It's not social distancing. We've all got very used to that. <laughs> this is self-distancing where you look at yourself as another human being. And when you do that, when you get it down on the piece of paper, that's when you can create the feedback that Jeffrey was talking about. So there's a great story about this. There's a wonderful guy named Benjamin Mitchell who uh, helped Jeffrey and I to, to learn a lot of this. We worked on a lot of the material on, on this topic together uh, to learn it and develop it. And, and he would go around, he would actually tape them. This was before the days of phones, uh, and smartphones. So he would record with an actual physical tape, or tape player and he'd go back to his uh, hotel room. He was a consultant traveling around, and he'd play the tape of the conversation, and, and trying it. to learn from it, and transcribe it while he was doing it. But uh, in addition to transcribing it, he would also periodically notice what an idiot he was, and he would say, oh, my God, Benjamin, stop doing that. Remember, his name is Benjamin. He's talking to Benjamin himself, but he's talking to the guy inside the tape recorder. And because he can distance himself in that way, he can get a much better result in, in analyzing because you feel like your brain operates in a different way with others than it does with yourself. And so that's the crucial notion is, yes, you need to record it, but record it on paper or on a screen or something else that is outside yourself. That will get you the best benefits. And that should be done on a fairly timely basis. You don't want to wait too long because by the time a few days have gone by, you probably remember 10% of what actually doesn't matter. It okay. doesn't matter because when you write it down, even weeks or months later, there's a wonderful thing which saves you from the challenge you think you have, which is, oh, my gosh, I can't remember what did Bob say and what did I say and what did Jeffrey say? And I, I don't remember. But the thing is, it's going to all pass through your brain as it goes on to the piece of paper. And your brain is the problem. 
So your brain is doing the wrong thing. So because it passes through your brain, you will make the same mistakes. So whatever Bob said that really ticked you off, you're going to write down, Bob said this thing, and I'm really ticked off at this, and I can't believe it. And then you're going to yell at Bob on the paper. You may not yell at Bob the same way, but you're going to yell at Bob, and that will help you to understand whether your yelling was effective. Maybe it was, or much more likely, there's a different way of approaching the situation. Yeah, you're more objective, which is what's the challenge, right? That's the self-distancing, and it helps you to understand it better. But it doesn't matter whether you get it right. Well, that explains all the times that you yell at me. (laughs) (laughs) I think taking accountability for everything, you know, basically personal responsibility for things when they're not working out well is a key part of it, right? Where I think you bring that up in the very beginning is, you know, we're part of the problem. It's not like we can put this on someone else. I just jotted down and I'll get to a couple of my other questions, but do you in the book, I haven't gotten to it yet, but you do kind of have specific prescriptions for people who are struggling in certain ways. And I'll speak for myself. When I'm getting impatient, I have a tendency to interrupt people. And my wife reminds me every time it happens, she's, she scowls me because I speak up, but I'm like, this person never stops talking. So I have to interrupt them in order to get some word in edgewise. Is there like, can I interrupt for a second? (laughs) Yeah. See, I'm doing it with permission there. Jeffrey has a wonderful story about this. So I, right. I, I just wonder if Jeffrey could tell a yes. great story. Oh, which which one? You need to prompt uh, it me. It involves your hand. Oh, okay. Yes. So I think that, so one of the things that, that happens here is as you, you do these um, uh, uh, reflections, these these four R uh, ideas, you know, you end up with, like on my desk in front of me, I have lots of these pieces of paper, which have two columns and I've, where I've done conversational analysis. Um, as you do many of them, you start to notice habits and patterns, and um, and uh, we we divide kind of the, the ideas into uh, three things: uh, uh, twitches, triggers, and tells. And the idea is that um, a twitch would be sort of a habit, a, a way that you tend to go, right? And uh, so so different people have different twitches. They'll tend to maybe ask questions or be silent or interrupt. Different different sort of habits of behavior. Uh, a trigger is something outside of you that causes a certain reaction. And so you might learn that there's certain scenarios that generate certain responses from you. And then there's tells, which are things that you can notice about yourself to realize that you're doing a certain pattern. So one of the things I noticed, and this is what Squirrel mentioned, was that I had a habit of saying in conversations, um, um, uh, of course, it, it's obvious, whatever. And, and, and I would do it while raising my hand. And this is the, this is the tell. And it's like- Specifically, uh, so- your, your right hand? It was left hand. Oh, it's my left sorry. hand. Okay. Yep. Uh, so obviously, it's actually this actually would say was this. I'd say obviously, da 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 da. But but then I I so what I learned was if I notice my hand in the air, I'd be like, wait, why is my hand there? Oh, I just said obviously, and then I had then and this is the key idea. I'd have a pre-planned action. When this happened, what would I do? Oh, it's not obvious. Let me explain. Right. That was it. That was that was the pre-planned action. The idea here is that by by understanding our conversational patterns, we can start to develop pre-planned actions and practice them. So when the moment comes, I now have a different available action to me. So in, in, in your scenario, you might realize, oh, I feel the desire to interrupt. How could I do so skillfully or what would what, what would be right? Is that the right thing to do? And you give yourself more options by generating these pre-planned actions, these scenarios, rather than trying to work them out in advance or in the, in the moment, you have them worked out in advance so that when it comes to the time that you can then execute them. So much like, uh, uh, you know, any kind of other scenario of skill, 
you 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 plan for it as opposed to just going with your instinct, which will give you predictably the same thing you've been doing for many years. You've practiced that style of interruption that you use for many years. Of course, unless you practice something else, you're going to keep doing that. So the so in the book we describe essentially this in this four R's in that revision. You can say, do I like this way? Do I like that way? I can experiment with different ways to find some wording or approach that I like and then see see what happens from there. I remember growing up, we had the talking stick because kids would not, would interrupt each other and the, and the teachers would basically say, all right, we're using a talking stick. Until you have the stick, you cannot speak. And so they would like try to hurry up and get the talking stick so that they yeah. could speak their mind. Uh, but I love that. So there are some specific, I mean, the, the process does allow us to look into our own unique um, drawbacks or just, you know, tendencies as we communicate with other people. That, that's, and that's the key thing, which I just want to point out about the talking stick method. Great method. Glad it works. Certainly helps and is a useful one. It doesn't go far enough. So lots of organizations try talking stick, stick kind of approaches. And they say, oh, what we need is a different structure. What we need is another meeting. This is how you get so many meetings. We need another meeting, and that's where we'll get these people together, and finally they'll talk. And when you create a structure, you create the opportunity for something to happen, but you don't make it happen. What happens, this is what we get into in a lot uh, uh, further on in the book, is what are the steps you can take to build trust? How can you remove fear? How can you get real commitment? How can you be accountable? Um, those things actually remove the barriers to people doing the talking or um, ceasing to interrupt. It's yeah. the emotions and the feelings and the uh, challenges that people have that they don't express, that don't come out in productive conflict, that lead to that. And something like the talking stick gives you the opportunity, doesn't necessarily resolve the problem. And one of the challenges I think we face today that's more unique, especially since COVID, is the multiple channels of communication, the asynchronous kind of, uh, channels like MS, Microsoft Teams, you know, WhatsApp, email, and still dealing with phone and face-to-face -face meetings. I mean, I talked to an executive. He's like, I don't even know how to how to do this anymore because we're being <laughs> bombarded in so many different directions. And the urgency of some of these methods are like much faster. And I'm just curious, you guys touch on that just briefly, that this is an issue you see. I'm curious what your advice is for people who are struggling with this. I, I, my, my view is that the what's really made the difference is that it's actually, it's not all these additional channels. It's the loss of the in-person face-to-face time. Mm. Um, and the reason is it's during face-to-face -face time uh, in the real world where people will build relationships in a sort of organic fashion, right? They, they, get, they learn to be, get to be comfortable with each other to some way. Maybe people go to lunch together, they get coffee together, maybe they go out for beer after work together, and they start to this is the way humans are. We're social primates. And so we begin to develop a sense of each other. And then that translates later into higher trust communication, right? So that, that's, so that's often, if you look at the phrase that people often use for, for team formation, you know, they'd say, uh, was it forming, storming, norming, performing, right? You go through this cycle where you develop relationships with people that then allow you to be productive later. I think what's happened is it's not so much the addition of all the different channels of communication, but it's been the, the loss of that, what the historic way that people have built trust, where they learn to start being vulnerable and disclose a bit more about themselves and learn a bit more about the other people. So they have some empathy that then later comes out in these conversations. So our, my belief is you can build that kind of trust 
deliberately, skillfully. <laughs> and, and, and once you have developed that trust, now the challenge of the different media uh, becomes much less. Because what that's really what it is to it's it's not that these um, in my experience not that the media have different demands but that people don't know how to build trust when they're not face to face. Think about how you might correspond with say your wife over uh, a text message or something like that, and how you might correspond with a boss or a client or someone like that. Those interactions are different, if, especially if it's someone new in the work world. Your interactions will be different. You might feel greater urgency or uh, less of an ability to come back with a productive conflict. Hey, wait a minute, that doesn't work for me. But I, you've already told us that your wife feels pretty comfortable telling you you're interrupting her. So Picking the end of the some... table, yes. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> So that's something you can do in person. You can also do it online. And so this is a place where I'll disagree with Jeffrey. Um, I live in, as I said, a 600-year-old house far out from uh, and, and the civilization. My main neighbors are 700 sheep who live over there. Um, but... Uh, uh, so I'm online all day, and that's the only I've never met many of my clients and never will. And I build trust with them very, very rapidly. But I do that very skillfully because I've practiced for years and years and years how to do that. And I've done all these uh, methods that, that help me to, to do that effectively. And it is harder work, and it is uh, it does require a greater level of skill to do it. But it, you can do it without meeting people at all. So I'm not so worried about whether we're meeting in person. I'm worried about whether all the means of communication we're using are uh, used in a way that's effective, that uh, builds trust rather than destroys it. I, I don't think we're disagreeing, Scroll. I think you're not oh, okay. agreeing. I'm saying that the point you use the key word is that you're using these skills you developed. And I say most people don't lack, lack those skills. So that's what we're trying to teach in the book is skills to, to essentially develop, have happened deliberately and skillfully what people normally can only accomplish sometimes by accident. Right. So it's, a, if you, it's if you easier might, in person to do it by it, accident. It's easier and more natural. And that's why that's why the, one of the agile principles that people often use is co-locate teams, get them all sitting together. Why? Because it works with human nature. People are more likely to develop positive relationships with people that are sitting around talking to all day than when they're separated by cubicles, you know, even 30 feet. You know, that's, uh, uh, you know, that, that people who are that far apart won't have the same relationship with people who live who are working five feet or 10 feet apart. So that's just it will it will happen for some people more naturally when they're together, and because the, and they don't know how to do the same thing skillfully when it doesn't come naturally to them. And that's that's the, the difference is what happens when there's a tendency to happen things organically, but then alternatively you can do it skillfully. Well, and I'm looking at throughout your book, and I was really impressed that Jeffrey brought up the piece of paper where he has the two columns. <laughs> throughout the whole book, you basically have these this very simple exercise, which is what the person thought and felt, and then what the conversation actually occurred. Have you ever tried to use this like in real time? Oh, yeah. Um, and does that help? Yeah, we have, Jeffrey. I, I seem to remember doing so. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think um, in, in real time. I think that where it comes out in, in, well, I think that's part of what happens is you're developing the skill to be aware of the difference, right? So you earlier made the reference to mindfulness. And I think that's the um, what this habit builds, when you practice it offline, you become aware of the difference between what is being said and your thoughts and feelings. And and the, the problem is actually humans normally are very bad at this. And, and uh, you talked about time earlier, 20 minutes, the, the research is something like this, 20 minutes after a conversation, people don't remember the difference between what was said, uh, what was implied, or what they inferred. Right. In other words, the things that were explicitly spoken versus the things that they just derived, they don't remember the difference. And, and often in the conversation, 
we're so caught up in our own view of the world, our own interpretation of what we meant, that actually we're not aware of what we say. And actually, this is, this is the strong form of it. In a conversation, normally, you are unaware of what you actually say. You, because you, what you're listening to is actually the thoughts in your head, which don't come out of your mouth. And in it, there's a, a good analogy here, which they did a study with um, some people where they had them tap out a tune. So they thought of a, of, a, of a song that everyone knows, something like, happy birthday to you. And they said, okay, now tap it out on the table. Mm -hmm. And then they said, how likely do you think the listener will be able to guess what you are tapping? And people thought, oh, I don't know, 30, 40% of the time. The actual numbers were like 5% of the time. So basically no one would guess. Now, why the discrepancy? It's because the person doing the tapping wasn't hearing the tapping. They were hearing the tune in their head. <laughs> but the listener is only hearing the tapping on the table. And they're like, I have no idea. This is what happens in our conversations. There are words that we're speaking that we don't hear them. We hear the thoughts going on in our head, but the recipient only hear the words coming out of our mouth. And, so the, and one of the big insights that happens is, oh, these things are different. <laughs> Actually, when I look at the page, I realize I didn't say the most important thing to me. I just, I just didn't say it. Oh, I didn't ask any questions. I wasn't aware of that. And so as you develop that awareness through the practice, then in real time, it's a little bit like real-time mindfulness. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not a little bit like it. It's exactly that. <laughs> you, you become aware of, oh, I haven't actually said this. You become aware of the gaps. Oh, I haven't explained my reasoning and intent for what I'm doing. Oh, I haven't Ask them why they're suggesting this. Oh, maybe I'll ask them, why, why are you suggesting it? What, what in your history made you think this is a good idea? Clearly, there must be something. I don't know what it is. Can you tell me what, what was that? And you become, therefore, that I think that's the real-time application. It's not that I'm writing things down in real time, but rather I become more aware of this, this separation between the said and the unsaid. Bob, you had something? Well, I'm, I'm curious because one of the early recommendations was that after the conversation, you write it down Yeah, and you're going to write down the part that was in your head, not what was in the meeting after the fact. And so yeah. if you, if you don't record it, 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 and even if you do record it, you're not picking up all the nonverbals, which are a huge percentage of the communication to begin with. Yeah. So I'm curious how you get this all to work. If you're recording the conversation and studying it after the fact, you're doing your perception of what I said is what you heard, which isn't necessarily the case. And so this I, is I'm what I was saying before. Handle those dilemmas. Sorry, I thought you were done. Uh, this is what I was saying before. So I'm going to maybe let Jeffrey explain it in maybe a slightly different way, because it it really doesn't matter. It's surprising. This is not an obvious fact, but it actually doesn't matter. Can, can, do you want to what what doesn't one? matter? Well, so the the, the nonverbals and the whether you get exactly right what was said and uh, whether you're giving your perceptions. That, that's that's that doesn't matter for your learning. You can the, learn just as well. So so the the, the key insight is going to be something like this. Typically, we are so bad <laughs> at conversations that we don't need the level of fidelity uh, that would come from a real recording. And I'll, and I'll make an analogy here with painting. So if I want perfect fidelity for what was in the room, I would take a picture. Someone who was a really good artist could, could draw it and they could paint it with an airbrush or oil paints that look would be pretty full of realistic. 
Um, my wife could do it with watercolor and it would look pretty good. I could do it and it would look like a, a four-year-old, you know, did it with crayons, right? It was just, my, my skill is so low. Um, and, and, and so it's sort of like, maybe I'm not reproducing exactly the apple and the bowl of fruit was in the room, but I'm like, okay, there was an apple. Let me draw an apple. Oh, wow. That's a terrible apple. How could I make that better? <laughs> you know, my, my, the, when I go to create the conversation on paper, I still will use the same part of my brain that generates conversations. Like I will need to use, I will need to create dialogue. And that dialogue I create will reflect my genuine skill in real conversations. So even if the the words are totally different, what I record will be no more skillful than what I'm able to produce. So it's just sort of like whether I drew the apple in the room looking at the apple or I drew the apple in my kitchen looking at a different apple, I'm still very bad at drawing apples. So I will generate bad dialogue. <laughs> but I'll and then I'll then I'll then I'll analyze it and then wow, that was bad. <laughs> I'm not very good at this. How can how could I improve this? How could I be better? So I don't know if that if that helps, that that we, we have the same uh skill in our real conversations that we have in our fake conversations. In fact, sometimes, let's be clear, we often recommend to people to do the conversation before you have the conversation. We'll say, think of either a conversation that where you were frustrated or think of a conversation you're dreading. Now, write the dialogue of that conversation you're dreading. How does it go? Why, why was it bad? And you will still get the value of writing up that conversation and then analyzing your skill and be like, oh, here's, here's mistakes that I'm making. So much of that. To clarify, when when Jeffrey says that he's bad at, at uh, conversations, he means he himself is bad at conversations. Yeah, I, I myself am bad at conversations, even though we wrote a book on it, have been studying it for ten or fifteen years. Yeah. So the the fact that we're bad at it is a universal fact. It's not like people who are learning it are new are bad at it. Everyone is bad at it all the time. The trick is to get slightly less bad by analyzing and repeating that analysis for a long time, which it, sounds a lot like learning to be more mindful. And we, we, to use another analogy, we often make the analogy to, to, to skiing, uh, you know, so and, um, if you go to, to, if you go to a ski resort, you'll have, you know, green beginner slopes and people who are just new will make lots of mistakes on the greens. As you get a little bit better, greens aren't so bad, but you go up to the blues and the uh, blue squares, and now you're having trouble. And then you get better at that. And now you go to black diamonds and, you know, you'll make mistakes there. And then you, you know, you, you, there's always harder and harder slopes to try to ski and there's harder and harder conversations. So the, the, the more I care about the topic, the more under threat I feel, the harder it is. If I'm surprised by a conversation, the harder it is. So my, my level of skill doesn't mean that all conversations are easy. It might make some easier, but there will still be ones that are challenging for where I'm at. So if I get surprised where someone, you know, out of the blue comes to me and says like, you did a really bad thing. And I I feel like I'm being unfairly attacked. I'm going to have trouble reacting skillfully. I'm going to be really hooked and like, what? I'm going to defend myself. And, you know, then I'll have to go back later and be like, oh, how could I have handled that better? (laughs) You know, there will always be something to, to improve at. Are we answering your question at all, Bob? How did we do? Well, you know, communications is the greatest challenge in the whole world. So uh, I didn't imagine you had an answer for it. But I mean, every every business I've ever worked with has had communication problems. Yeah. The second you have, sometimes with one person. <laughs> sometimes I can I can have trouble with myself in that in that regard. But mm-hmm. the, the the thing that I'm I'm 
trying to get my head around is you, you record the conversation as you perceived it, mm-hmm. even though you, you acknowledge on the front end that is not what happened. Yeah. No, because the conversation you heard isn't the one that happened at either. Yeah. So <laughs> when you were in the conversation, so the conversation we're having right now, Bob, where, where you've asked a couple of times, um, you know, what do you do? How do you keep the fidelity high and so on? Look, I'm, I'm not even replacing. I'm not even. I'm oh, I'm not even in the fidelity range. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I got it wrong. I just got it wrong right there. I just, and I, that wasn't an intentional mistake. That was an actual mistake because I haven't been hearing you as well as I possibly could in a, a, a perfect being would be able to re- re- replay for you like it was on a tape recorder what you said. You mean I'm like interpreting AI? based on, yeah, based on, <laughs> let me tell you, come back to chat GPT. I've got something on that. All so right, just all remind right. me, well, we should come back there. But because right. um, there's actually real benefit from that. But but the, the key thing is that um, the conversation always happens in your head. The conversation always is interpreted <clears throat> by the part of your brain that, that is is in 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 expert at this, doesn't do it well. We, so, we we don't perceive reality directly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, just, just to take a, another simple analogy, your eyes do not see the room that you're in. So um, you know, uh, if I look, I'm not seeing, except for this tiny little space, the, the computer in front of me and the microphone over here and the water bottle over there. My brain is filling those in because my eyes are actually moving around a little saccades and they're actually scanning the room. But my brain perceives it as if they're, they're, I can see the whole room, but I can't. That's where you get optical illusions. Same thing happens with conversational illusions. I thought you said something about fidelity. You didn't. And I, we could go back and check the recording. I'm sure you didn't say that. But because I've been thinking about that, and that's something that's a bias for me for whatever reason, I picked that up and said, oh, Bob's interested in the high fidelity recording. But it's not. That's going to happen over and over and over again. And when I record this conversation to analyze it, if I were to do so, I'm going to make the same mistakes, even if I don't remember exactly what Bob said. So I know this is really counterintuitive. Uh, I'm happy to talk about it more. But um, the, the, the trick is you don't need to have um, accurate information. You just need to make the same mistakes. Yeah, and I think just being open that your interpretation of the conversation is likely highly flawed is is useful, just knowing mm-hmm. that you're you're picking up and filling in the blanks in your head of things that you assumed were said, but were never actually spoken. You jump to a lot of conclusions based on your history and your experience leading up to this point. Um, but uh, so you're validating, and I think that con- that process of sitting down and validating uh, is very helpful. So let's jump over to Chat GPT because that's the topic of the world right now, <laughs> and uh, how the fact that AI oftentimes will have an answer that seems more accurate than a human being when I type it in, and perhaps. How this well, it's expressed very confidently, right? But not infrequently, <laughs> it's completely true. made up. It's 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 very confidence in its inaccuracy. And my yeah, wife, and it is, sounds great. Yeah, my wife is the same way. Sometimes she's a hundred percent confident <laughs> in what she's saying when she knows, and we find out later it's not true. But the the idea that that role I'm not going to touch that one. I don't want to get in trouble with your wife. We've had these conversations. She's great. The Good. role playing piece. Maybe this is where ChatGPT comes in. So exactly right. There, there's something people keep missing about it just because it sounds so convincingly human that people think, oh, this is now going to write all our blog posts. It's going to um, invent new ideas. It's it's somehow going to replace humans who do those things. I don't think it's going to do that at all because it, it has this hallucinatory capacity. 
it, um, where it makes up stuff and it will it will tell you very confidently that there's this paper written by this person and it'll give you the citation it'll tell you which page number and everything it's all made up it doesn't exist so um uh the the challenge is that there's something else that it's really good at which is why it hallucinates and that is it's the world's greatest actor and it you imagine uh, i'll just pick an example for that that i'm excited about there's a guy called benedict cumberbatch he's a uh, acts in lots of movies one he acted in, yeah we uh, well the one i'm going to refer to is uh called the the um uh the imitation game yes where mm-hmm. he played alan turing who was the guy who said hey maybe if we could talk to a computer then we could conclude the computer is thinking so this is kind of relevant to uh this this whole world the people can the computer can pass the turing test now but when cumberbatch was depicting turing he was just reading the script and then inventing a character he never met the actual turing and he died long before ben cumberbatch was around so uh he's making up a character and he's responding as that character if we had him here on the podcast we might say uh and we asked him to be alan turing we might say hey hey alan uh, what primary school did you go to uh and he'd make up an answer it would sound like alan turing it would be completely made up because i'm sure he didn't look up what primary school he went to um <laughs> but he could tell us about his favorite teacher and his favorite color and how he used the crayons and you could tell us all that stuff it would all be made up but it would sound a lot like alan turing that's what this machine is really good at that's what chat gpt and bard and, and bing and all these things are, are are actually really good at so if you rely on them for actual information you know if i wanted to find out about alan turing's life I shouldn't ask Benedict Cumberbatch. That would not give me a lot of valid information. <laughs> but if I want to practice talking to Alan Turing, there's nobody better, right? He's a super skilled actor. He understands Turing very well, at least as portrayed in the movie. And so he could be a convincing Alan Turing for me. We've got a machine that can do that for any any character in the world and, and multiple ones at the same time. So I could ask one to be Brian. I could ask it to be Brian and Bob. And when you're responding as Brian, do this. And when you're responding as Bob, do that. And make sure that you uh, yell at me a bit um, about this topic, uh, at least three minutes into the conversation, and go. And then I can go practice. Now, I haven't done a lot of this yet because the stuff is so new. Um, But I'm starting to tell my uh, coaching clients, hey, try this out. I don't think it's well developed yet. I think that we'll see a lot of innovation in this space in the next year where you can actually go and program it to uh, to be somebody that you want. It'll have kind of an angry boss setting and you can just say, be the angry boss and it'll know. You won't have to come up with it yourself. But today you can try that and you get quite val- valuable um, uh, um, sparring partners. And so um, we've always said it's extremely valuable and it still is, it's still a really good thing to rehearse your conversations the way you'd like them to be. So I might go back and say, oh, I want to rehearse talking to Bob and I don't want to use the word fidelity. If you notice, I say the word fidelity, Jeffrey, stop me. Because <laughs> that's where I'm making a mistake. I, I'm, a, I'm not listening to Bob very well. I'm missing something. So you be Bob. And when I screw up, you tell me. And that works great. We should still do that. That's really, really valuable. But I'm starting to think that you can also do that with uh, with these um, large language models. So we don't know that yet, but that's where it seems to be going. Well, people have heard are practicing interviews on them now. I think that would be a really useful thing to do. But yeah, especially they, bad interviews, right? The interview where you <laughs> screw up, that would be the one to try. Not You don't want to have a good interview. You want to have a bad one and recover or analyze. Well, and it's capable of passing the bar exam, we recently heard. I mean, so it's sort of. it, it's, if it's oh. based on knowledge alone, it's good. But I think the role-playing piece that you talk about in this book, it does potentially open up a real good way to apply the role-playing piece, which is can be hard to pull off but ChatGPT is free and we can all use it for that purpose. The uh, Troy and John, you guys have been nice and quiet. Do you want any questions based on what you've heard? Any 
any ideas? These guys are both retired, so they're in a different world, but. Uh, no, not, I wouldn't say willfully retired at the moment, but that's another uh, issue there. Um, I'd like to try to ask, or I, I personally haven't read the book, but how but he does, will. Uh, I will actually, you know, I can think of you know, ways you've alluded to you on how this could have, not just in the workplace, be very practical for you know, family conversations, right. significant spousal conversations, et cetera. Very interested there. I'm also interested in the uh, the emotional intelligence component or other, I would call you know, other techniques within the workplace that well, people may, what, is there any other resource there that may be advantageous as you're walking into these conversations if you have a more of a, an emotional awareness about that other individual and what, how they generally interact or is there, is there any information like that that might be helpful? I'll let Jeffrey do much more on this because he's got a lot more. I will just give the brief answer for me, which is include emotion in your conversations. So many people try to suck it out, and that makes it much worse. Jeffrey, you've got a lot more on this, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. So they, there's a, a lot in this. I think the, the one of the, the key skills or in that when you're having a conversation with someone is around empathy, which is to try to um, understand the story that they're telling themselves related to their emotions. Like someone, I, I like there's a definition that says like a feeling is a sensation in your body. An emotion is a feeling with a story. <laughs> so um, and trying to understand the story that someone's telling, and it fits well with what we talk about in the book. One of the fundamental exercises we talk about is, you know, are you being transparent and are you being curious? And so the way that it might go together is, okay, so I, I'm guessing that the story you're telling yourself is this, is that right? <laughs> and the great thing is this is like a free action in a conversation. If you're right, the person feels really understood. And you know you, you do a lot to, to, to get closer together to have a productive conversation. If you're wrong, they don't hold it against you. They just correct you. <laughs> yeah, which we saw live here. Bob and I did not set this up ahead of time, but you know, I misinterpreted what Bob was telling us. And that was useful. I don't think Bob trusts me less. I hope not. He hasn't hung up. <laughs> but I hope what Bob feels is Squirrel's trying to understand, and he's got a bit wrong. I'm going to help it. Is yeah. that true, Bob, or am I misunderstanding? No, I think I think you nailed it. I mean, I I look at this chat GDP or GPT thing, and and I say, how can you, you know, put any credence in something that you start with eighty percent, and here's your word fidelity <laughs> in their data? I mean, I asked it for a resume for Bill Gates, and it told me he graduated from Harvard. Yeah. He's the most favorite, the most famous dropout of Harvard. Of course. Planet. Well, don't believe it about anything, just like you wouldn't be believe Benedict Cumberbatch about touring, right? Right. It's, right. it's not and, a source of information. It's a and source that's, of action. That's where I have this issue with with the what's being called AI these days. It is really got some bad rabbit holes, I guess is the best way to put it, that it can head down. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I'm curious, you know, if you use this to, to help practice dialogue. First, you're doing it in text rather than verbally, so that's that's one one problem with it. Uh, well, it's not uh, a problem; it's actually a big help. So we can go into that if you want. Okay, how is it? How is it not a drawback to it? Uh, so, so it's the same thing we were talking about before. We we have a theme going here. So, and, and right. Tom, you and I, you and you and Jeffrey and I may disagree. That's completely fine. But well, let me tell you how it looks to us, having practiced it a lot. Low fidelity. Uh, going back to fidelity again. 
uh, low um, accuracy, um, uh, sort of fitting it through the thin pipe uh, of a uh, your conversation through the thin pipe of text, which has also yeah. gone through your own brain. That's really useful because it makes it simpler to analyze. There's all kinds of nuance and complication and difficulties that come about because we're on a screen and maybe you're on the wrong part of the screen or the camera's slightly off. So, you know, you've got me not very well lit. Um, some that many, many factors are confounding in our conversation, but there's a very simple one. I, I didn't hear you right. <laughs> I wasn't listening very well. So, uh, and, and that comes through in text and it's much simpler to see there rather than squirrel with his uh, shirt slightly unbuttoned and, um, uh, you know, feeling a little tired because it was a long day and it's the evening in England and, these, and you know, five other things. That's a lot of context that actually confounds the situation. The situation is I'm trying to listen to Bob and answer his question and I'm not doing very well. So I want to get that as clearly and as succinctly and as black and white as I can. And I'm going to do that better if I'm in text. So that's why, for example, although email has many very bad characteristics and Slack has even worse, one saving grace of them is you can get look at the words and they're they're in very clear letters, right? It's not you misinterpret the handwriting or you didn't hear the person correctly or something. It's like he said, Squirrel, you're an idiot. Great. I now I know that he thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> I don't have to say, did I hear midiot or uh, quidiot or something? What was it? No, Squirrel's an idiot. Okay. I have something I can deal with. So I'm a big fan of um, lower bandwidth, uh, simpler communication. And if I turned on closed caption right now, you would have the text of every word that was spoken to the accuracy of the transcriber in real time. But that's a more expensive Zoom application. <laughs> it is. And you don't have. need it. Again, it's useful to get it lower bandwidth and get it through the, the, um, the brain of a human so that you can expose the mistakes. I'm really curious, the two of you, as you were writing this book, because you were co-authors. And mm -hmm. how did you use Eat Your Own Dog Food to some extent of the, the things that you were writing about to help you get through this process, because it can be very difficult to co-author a book. In fact, I would say being in publishing, less than 50% of the books that start out ever <laughs> ever see the light of day when there's co-authors. Jeffrey knows about that. Well, this, this is my third attempt at a book. So yeah. I, I have two prior failures. So I'm, I'm, right, I'm right there with you. So. But, but, but th those are great because the, the great opportunity that gave you was to know what wouldn't work. That's right. And so you, you didn't have failures. You had successful experiments with a negative result. That's right. That's what I tell so, my clients over and over again. But, but one, one but thing I think was useful for us is that we have a podcast. Yeah. So actually. 273 episodes, I think. So Troubleshooting Agile Podcast, and that was a, a one time a working uh, title for the book was Troubleshooting Agile. Um, we would often uh, uh, work through ideas in conversation uh, on the podcast. And then, and then, then we would know what we wanted to say in the book. So that that was a big uh, help of how we worked this out. So in applying it, the idea is the value of conversations, and we would have conversations. Indeed. And the the other most important thing is it's in chapter three that you're not going to get very far if you don't have trust. So if we actually deal with the issue that we don't trust each other and the causes of that, and dealing with how that comes to be through things as simple as Jeffrey's hand up and saying something's obvious, which I remember him evolving. Um, if you can do that over a period of time, then it becomes much easier to work on a book. And, and I don't remember, Jeffrey, you tell me if I've got it wrong. I don't remember any massive conflicts. I don't remember us having unproductive conflict over the book. I remember saying, should this be in chapter three or chapter five? Or are you going to write this part or am I going to write that part? We had negotiations, but I thought they were all very productive conflicts. So I didn't find the process of writing the book painful at all. No, I don't think so. And I would say that, we, and to go back to Agile for a moment, I think we, well, we were pretty Agile and we evolved the book over time. It was originally called Sprinting in Place. Uh, I still want the first, that title. 
was his first working title. And then, and then we troubleshoot Agile and eventually Agile Conversations. And so that we, we evolved it, tried small things. You know, we had sample chapters and then, and then, uh, and then an outline and, and, and evolved it uh, over time, the way that we, people would say to uh, uh, evolve and, and, you know, therefore embracing change uh, uh, as it went along. Well, and we had been working together for 15 years by that point, I think, if I remember right, from when we started the book, we, from when you met me. Yeah, Must we met in 2006. Yeah, yeah, so 14, 15 years of working together and having unproductive conflicts. I can remember <laughs> several of those, not about the book, because we got those all out of the way early, built the trust, built the foundation, and then the collaboration was much easier. But it was a huge investment up front. We did a lot to, to make that happen and studied it and worked hard at it and screwed it up a lot. Well, kudos to you for keeping it very it's relatively brief. The reality is the two authors, you could have easily had something twice this size and oh, you, you pared it way down to something. Yes, we did. That can is actually use because it drives me nuts when I get a 400 page book. Now you talked about the, uh, I, the, the benefit of rehearsing a conversation before it happens. One of the things I was drawn to was Bezos six famous six page memo that he would send out before his executive meetings. You had to like the first 20 minutes of the meeting, they just sat down and read the written narrative of the meeting. Um, is that something you guys support and it, can this basically be utilized or not? So I, I'm not a fan and I started rejecting it as soon as you're halfway through your sentence. So maybe I need to learn to be better on interrupting. But um, I think you could use some of these techniques in that environment. If that works for you, I'm not going to argue. I'd be perfectly happy with that. But if somebody came to me and said, How, what would be a good way for me to organize my uh, my meetings and my discussions? Silence for uh, six or 10 or 20 minutes at the beginning wouldn't match uh, our philosophy because you notice the second word of the book is conversations. Mm. So um, we'd, we'd kind of like the people to be talking and uh, discussing and having productive conflicts about what's in the paper. I'm in fam- favor of reading something beforehand. That sounds great. Be more prepared for the conversation. But but I, I'd, I'd rather have the conversation. I don't know. Maybe Jeffrey disagrees. I, I I think I I think I'm in I'm indifferent. I think the advantage of the the Amazon approach is acknowledging the re- reality and fallibility of humans. That even if you send something to people to read ahead of time, not everyone will, and and often for you know good reasons. Things came up. There are other things that are important. So what you're doing is saying, look, it's really important that we have shared understanding, right? It's literally we want to be on the same page. You know, right now when we're talking, are we both looking at page three? paragraph four, like that's actually our conversations are trying to get to that point, right? We want people to be sharing their experiences and sharing their facts. That's a key element. The value of transparency is to say like, well, here's what I know about the situation. Someone else says, well, here's what I know. If you've compiled that ahead of time into a document that you're all looking at, you've done a lot of the work. So I think that's, I think there's a lot of advantages to it. I think there's other ways to get on the same page and, uh, you know, I think there's, so there's a trade-off. If you're skillful at conversations, then you can draw out only those things that were relevant. And maybe you get the equivalent of what would have been one page, you know, but you put it up on the whiteboard and you work it out together. We often have, in, in a company I was at before, we would have a shared document in every meeting and we would be typing, multiple people could be typing in relevant facts. So we would essentially be generating the document in the meeting. Perhaps that was more efficient. So I'll just say the real goal is, are you getting shared facts? Are you sharing your different experiences? I'm kind of indifferent to how you get there. So that's my Well, my, and my it's, take it, it comes down to the keys accountability, right? So after those meetings, those shared documents, action items, so something actually comes out of it and people understand what their roles are, where they're accountable to move the ball forward, right? That's a big part of 
what you guys and i say the accountability in the meeting <laughs> which is to share what you know and share your view and it's not just even if you disagree but especially if you disagree to go back we said earlier like the value of diversity we sometimes say this we're going to have this discussion we should pretend like one person has a secret fact that only they know and would totally change what our outcome would be. Now, how are we going to run? I go further than that sometimes, Jennifer, <laughs> you know this. I'll, I'll tell people there is a secret fact. And I've told yeah. somebody that if we manage to discover it, everyone will have ice cream. <laughs> and I wait a few moments. And then I say, well, actually, let me fill you in. I actually haven't done that. And there isn't any ice cream. But I want you all to behave as if you had uh, believed what I said, which you did a moment ago. So yeah. what were you thinking of doing in order to get the ice cream? Do that. How, how do we structure the conversation such that if one person had specialized knowledge, we would find that most relevant thing and apply it? And, and that's the way I look at the conversations is we, we don't really know what's going to end up shaping the outcome. And so it's like it's a discovery process. How do we discover what we all know so we can make collectively the best decision? Wonderful. Bob, any last questions? We're getting up to the hour. These guys have been very. Yeah, I, I have one quick question. Well, not quick question. Uh, it seems to me that almost everybody faces these communication problems. It's, it's universal pretty much across the board. In your studying of the problem, have you found any major sources? And specifically, I want to ask about schools that teach people that there's a right answer and that they're out to be the smartest kid in the room, not part of the team. Is, are we setting the stage for difficulties there because you two just made a big point of the fact that you knew each other and got to know each other deeply before you went to writing a book which was the tough task at, at the end of it without that experience could you have done it i think we could now because we in addition to what we did over those years is we were studying this material so brian's question was how did you apply it we applied it right. by practicing having unproductive conversations, writing them down in this way and improving them. Um, and so when we came to do it, it was easier. If we were to write, I think, it was for me, if I were to write with a, a different co-author who hadn't got this trust with me, I would be working in the same way. I'd be using these same techniques and therefore it would be easier. But, you know, how many hours do we have to talk about where these things come from and are they, are <laughs> yeah, they from schools? Yeah. The, the one thing I will say is that um, I, 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 a very common tendency, and it's come up a lot here, and I'm not beating you up, Bob, for it in any sense, but it's just a very common tendency, is to think, well, where's the structural cause of this? What meeting could we hold? What what um, book could we read? What um, uh, uh, document could we write beforehand? How could we train people better? How could we have different schooling? Uh, how, how could we address these problems in a structural way? And if people take nothing else away, the structure isn't the problem. It, that's my view, at least that um, uh, having better schools would be great. And we could talk for that about that for a whole nother podcast, but that's not going to remove the human tendency that the, the natural evolution that has caused us to um, favor fear over trust, to um, not make commitments, uh, to not be accountable. There's lots of reasons that human brains as they are shaped inside our heads don't behave that way. And all the schooling in the world, all the documents you read beforehand, all the, um, uh, structures of the meetings are not going to change that. What changes that is learning a skill, which is just as hard as skiing. You know, we weren't, we don't evolve knowing how to ski. We have to go learn it, and you have to learn how to have conversations the same way. Thank you. Thank well, you. if people want to learn more about uh, you two and Squirrel, now is a good time to plug your your newsletter. 
wanted to okay. uh, both share a little bit about, and mainly Squirrel. I think Jeff's Jeffrey's kind of a low key guy. He doesn't. I, I keep trying to get him to do more consulting, so keep 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 asking him to do <laughs> All more. Right. But Squirrel, uh, how people can get in touch with you and and learn about more about. Well, actually, I'm going to suggest Jeffrey does uh, um, our, our common website, and then I'll I'll do a little okay. bit about uh, some other things. Would that yeah. be okay, Jeffrey? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our common website is agileconversations.com, and there you'll find links to our <laughs> podcast transcripts of past episodes. Uh, a link to a meetup that I run once a month for people to practice this. That's where these papers come from is we have a, a conversational dojo that I run uh, every month on, on meetup uh, and a lot of other resources that you can download that are videos and whatnot. So I'd start, that's the first home for our, our, our joint work together is agileconversations.com. There you go. And that's where you can find our individual websites and so on. I, I do an additional thing, which is squirrelsquadron.com. So squadron like the fleet of planes in the air. Um, and uh, Squirrel Squadron is my community of people who are in tech and not in tech, and we get them together and they learn from each other. What a crazy idea. No one else seems to do that. But I don't know why. So that's what I've done, and uh, that's all free. There are free weekly events. There's, a, as you say, a newsletter. There's a forum. Uh, there's uh, tons of material there for practicing, um, putting all this uh, 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 material that we've talked about to, to practical use. So uh, how do you actually run your tech team differently? How do you change the marketing uh, of your organization? Uh, how do you get strategy for your uh, leadership team so that it actually functions and has accountability? Those are all the kinds of questions that uh, we deal with there. So I would love to see people at squirrelsquadron.com too. All right. And that just to Bob is probably chomping at the bit to explain to you what's what actually what soft tech exists for is to connect the techies with the non-techies. And that's what we've been doing right. since Central Coast in a face-to-face oh, -face forum, but we've been doing it for now over 30 years. And we have them called soft tech moments when there's a light bulb that goes off in the connection that's made, whether it's asynchronously or real time in our meetups. And we meet, we get together uh, every three months now. Uh, and our next meetup is gonna be uh, in June, June 10th on the topic of artificial intelligence. And we're gonna have a panel be talking about a lot of things that are going to continue to evolve and i tell you i don't think a day goes by that i don't have some conversation around it and i do think it's it's definitely going to revolutionize the world especially in the publishing side of things so um, it is pretty dramatic yeah. but you both have been really great today i can tell you're skilled in this process of yourself which make you great uh guests to have on on the podcast and i look forward to listening to some of your podcasts super great questions enjoyed them very much yeah All thanks right. for having us Thank you for listening to Tech Reads, sponsored by SoftTech. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or want to suggest an author for a future episode, visit SoftTech at softec.org and click on the Tech Reads link.